We'll see. Oh, it's good to be back home. Wow. We have um, been away for a couple of days, marrying off a daughter, and then we played in some water. Uh, For those of you who are visiting, my oldest daughter, Lauren Sportsman, is now officially Lauren Branham. Uh, I had the wonderful pleasure of walking her down the aisle to give her away, and then flipping sides and then uh, being uh, the minister for that ceremony. It took place in Lubbock, just outside of Lubbock, actually, in a little town called Idaloo. There's an apple orchard out there, believe it or not. I never would have thought it, but uh, it's there, and uh, they transformed that into a great place for a wedding. And I just want to tell those of you who were praying for me that I wouldn't step on the dress, your prayers were answered, and that I wouldn't turn into a blubbering mess, Uh, also those prayers were answered. Uh, The ceremony really was a celebration. Um, After we got done with that, we stopped in town, reloaded and uh, headed on down to South Padre for five days, and it was just incredible. Uh, The girls played in the water on the beach. I played in the water on the golf course, Uh, and we all had fun, and we are glad to be back home. Uh, Some very gracious people loaned us our guest house for those days, and we just had an absolute blast. I understand you were in good hands last week as Greg brought the message, and uh, I am so grateful to have him with us. Uh, And I am honored to get to stand in the place where he has stood for 16-plus years. Last announcement. Uh, As some of you have read in the bulletin, but some of you didn't have a bulletin uh, for today, we have a new addition to our staff, Miss Cindy Zastro. And I'm going to ask Cindy to stand. Come on, young lady, please. She is not hard to miss, okay, when she does stand. And we are thrilled to have her with us. And she uh, came into the office a couple hours this last week, but she officially starts Monday. So, uh, yay, God, we are thrilled uh, to have her on board. I want to start this morning's message by asking a question. I'm really not looking for a verbal answer, so don't give me one. But here's the question. Do you whistle? Now, here's how I'd like for you to respond about that. If you do whistle, on the count of three, I'd like for you to do that. Just give me one long, single-note burst like this. Are you with me? All right. Get your whistles wetted. Here we go. On the count of three, we're all going to do this together. One, two, three. Well, that was pretty good if you were in ICU. There's a couple of hundred of us here, folks. Come on now. One single note whistle on the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, I'm going to come back to that one that's over here in just a few moments. (laughs) What you just did was shirak. You didn't know that, but in Hebrew, the word for whistle is shirak. I want you to say that with me. Shirak. One more time. Shirak. It is a word that appears 19 times in our Bible and most often is translated as a term of derision, a term of scorn. Most often it's actually translated hiss. That is what happens when the Aggies in this room hear me talk about the great University of Texas. Did you know that that was biblical? (laughs) I hate that it is, but it is. In Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 15, God is lamenting what once was a city that he helped to create. All who pass by clasp their hands at you, and they hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that's called the perfection, the beauty of the world, 
the joy of the whole earth. He says of Babylon later in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 13, because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all of her plagues. The hissing that actually takes place in Scripture isn't like the Aggie hiss, not the hiss that we usually associate with a cat. It's more like the one that we associate when you go by an accident and you see a horrific head-on and you go, <whistles> or when your son walks in and instead of catching a fly ball with his glove, he catches it with his left eye and a shiner has swollen up and you go, <whistles> that's a big one. That's usually what the scripture is talking about whenever it says that, the, that someone in it has shirat. Now, here's the question. Did you know that God whistled? God shirocked. Thirteen times, as a matter of fact, in the Bible. Seven times it's translated he scoffed. Two times that he hissed. One that he signaled. And three times that God whistled. Now, it's the same word in all of those contexts, but the context itself determines what really is appropriate there. Some of you, no doubt, have shirocked when you were calling one of your pets a dog or a cat. There seems to be a universal whistle for that. Isn't that weird? We were raised to call our pets. Now, when you wanted to call one of your kids, you didn't usually, usually use that whistle. I hope you didn't. Usually you use your whistle. And I can't, I'm, not, I'm a minor league whistler, all right? Self-admission. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'm a 3. But usually when you called your kids, it was something like, now, again, that's minor league. Somebody over here can do that the way it's supposed to be done. Who did that real loud, shrill? There we go. That is Sharak. And it's what takes place in Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 8, where the Bible says about God, I will whistle for Israel and gather them, for I will redeem them. In this particular case, God's Shirak is good. He's calling his people back. But in the case that we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 26, God is once again whistling and he's once again calling. But he isn't calling his family home. Listen to me, church. He's calling the enemies of Israel to come and destroy their home. Sobering words, but let's read them in verse 26. Isaiah 5, 26. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of a lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by the clouds. I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Father, we don't like to hear hard things, but we desire to hear all of your truth not just the parts we like best. You are a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who calls us, who cheers for us. 
But you're also a God who warns us. And we are thrilled that you do all three. Please help us to have ears to hear today. We ask you to come alongside also the Notre Dame Catholic Church today. Father, you know those among that fellowship who are yours, as you know those among us who are yours. We pray that together, your disciples, the body of Jesus Christ, will unite all over this county to be one body, one force, that hopefully one day, Father, gets to hear you blast a trumpet, separate the clouds, and come and take us home. We long for that day. Help us to find a way to be one so that we can work together to save everyone that is possible. In Jesus' precious name, and everyone said. The text that we just read from is from the most quoted Old Testament book that's in our New Testament. We know lots of scriptures that come out of the book of Isaiah. But most of the ones we know by heart or by hearing are filled not with warnings, but warm fuzzies. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, we know this great scripture. He gives strength to the weary. And he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. And they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That's a great scripture for any time of the year. But one of the ones that we like also from Isaiah comes especially around Christmas time. We hear it a lot from Isaiah 7 and verse 9. They're the scriptures that are about Emmanuel. God with us. You know this verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And we will be, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a great scripture. And we love that at Christmas. Then there's some scriptures we hear a lot about at Easter time in Isaiah 53. They're the suffering servant passages. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds are we healed. Great scripture. But the one that I grew up hearing the most from Isaiah was the one that came from Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe this one rings a bell. In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's a great scripture. And it's a scripture that tells us about how majestic, you just sung about it, but how majestic our God is. Interesting. And no accident that I think it follows a chapter where largely God reveals how mad he is. He is furious with Israel in Isaiah chapter 5. And so that they know they're not dealing with a decrepit old God who, who makes threats from a wheelchair. They'll, no offense, okay? He makes a personal visit to his people in their temple, in the throne room. And upon seeing him, Isaiah falls to the ground confessing how unholy he is. And how holy God is. Question. What in the world did the nation of Israel do that makes God so angry that he decides to show up in person? If you don't like history much, here's your time to check out. I'll tell you when to check back in in just a few moments. But if you don't like history, this is going to be a short little history lesson that I think is going to help us this morning with this text. Isaiah is a prophet that's prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah. 
The first three kings of Israel were David, Solomon, and Saul, and they experienced a time when the nation of Israel was united. Now, not warm, fuzzy united, but they were together. And all of that came crumbling down at the end of Solomon's life. When those wedges that had developed over some years became chasms, and all of a sudden we had a north-south civil war going on, very similar to what we had in America, at least in tension. There's a split with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Isaiah has come on the scene about 800 B.C. to speak to the southern kingdom, warning them about a storm that's coming. Now, we've heard a lot about bad storms here lately, a lot of in the press about hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff. Well, this was a storm not so much about weather, but a storm that had to do with warriors. Stormtroopers in the 800 B.C. century were coming. The southern kingdom had seen a country grow in power over years by the name of Assyria. And they had amassed weapons of mass destruction and they were on the move and they were unstoppable to say that everybody that heard of them was intimidated be a major understatement. Assyria had not lost a single battle with anybody when Isaiah comes on the scene. Their military machine is knocking on the door of the northern kingdom. And Isaiah warns the southern kingdom that Assyria is going to be carrying them off soon if they don't change their ways like the northern kingdom is about to be carried off. Now, I know that some of that really doesn't ring a bell. I'd like to ask you to check back in now if you're really not much on history. So here's a modern-day version of this. Imagine when you get home today and all of a sudden the headlines in the news are reporting Canada has been invaded by China. Canadian armies have been overwhelmed, their cities have been overtaken, and now the Canadian government is no longer in control of their homeland. But the Chinese are not stopping at the border. The Chinese have declared there are no borders. In a matter of days, they've dipped down into the New England states, and within a week, they're on the very doorstep of our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Now, if you heard that over the next couple of days, I can imagine it would put a little, no, a lot of fear in you. That what was taking place just north of us could very easily take place even in Texas. All right? I can imagine it would put a great deal of fear even into the most bold among us. That's the context into which Isaiah is speaking to his people. And when Isaiah speaks to this southern kingdom, it's an attempt to get them to wake up. And to realize that they are just this close to experiencing the wrath of God. They've seen his blessing. They, they really don't want to experience his wrath. Verses 2 through 3, the Bible says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows its owner's feed trough. But Israel does not know me, nor do they understand. What's God's big beef with this nation of his people? It's just this. They've forgotten him. They know about him. They know of him. They may acknowledge him, but they don't know him. And that not just breaks his heart, it's breaking them. And it always does. That's why in John chapter 17 and verse 3, Words that were spoken by Jesus would also be spoken through this prophet Isaiah. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's the only life that's worth living. Many in 800 B.C. think the same thing that we think. 
Well, if that's true, what we need to do then is go to church more. Nah, you wouldn't want to probably say amen to this one. Because in verse 12, here's what he says. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings to me. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies another moment. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all of my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, my eyes are hid from you. I will not listen. Wow. That's in the Bible? Yeah, it is. How could God say that? I thought he always listened to prayers. I thought he was the one who told Israel to go to temple. I thought he was the one who instructed them to pray and never give up. That he commanded them to offer sacrifices and celebrate feasts. He did. Verse 15 sheds light on what he means by all that. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And there will be hope for you. Wow, you mean there's hope? Yes. There's always hope in our God who is more rich in mercy than he is in justice. We talked about that last time we were together. And he is. So much more rich in mercy than he is even in justice. But the problem is, not their attendance and worship on Sunday. It's how they're living on Monday. And God cares very, very much about how they're living on Monday. As much as he does their attendance and worship on Sunday. About how he's getting, treating their orphans right and the widows right. Much more so than getting church right. Having read the story, all of it, and seeing page by page how God just pours out blessing upon blessing of these people. He allows them to live in houses they didn't even build. He allows them to to have uh, grapes from vineyards they never even grew. He brings them into the land literally flowing with milk and honey. And he allows them to experience every potential blessing this earth has imaginable. How in the world can a people get to a point that they can walk into a place of worship on a holy day and they can worship a God of love and mercy and yet leave and not give any love or mercy to anybody? How is that possible? How is it possible when they could leave a place where they've just sung how how majestic is His name, how much He is love, and yet not show love? That when they go outside, what they're angry about most is not the injustices that they see. What they're angry about most is, is that somebody messed up their tea time. Or that their masseuse didn't show up and nobody called. Or that someone's parking in in the old people parking lot. Can't some of those young people walk? Or they just get angry and they're ready to be angry all the time. That's the nation of Israel. Blessed beyond imagination. And yet what they seem to be is so ungrateful and so uncaring. Chapter 5 doesn't leave us in the dark about what exactly led them to that type of a heart 
He says three things will do it every single time. And they're all here in Isaiah chapter 5. And they all start with this word, woe. There's actually six of them, but they can be condensed into three specific points. Yea, God, for preachers. Three specific points I want you to take home. And they start with the word woe, and I just want to apologize right up front. I know that sounds like a religious word. But it is such a powerful word. We really don't have another one like it in the American language that says, Brother, you're going to be in a world of hurt if you don't want me to come over there. You are so busted. We don't have a single word in our language that confers the power of the word woe except for one. Maybe this. Dude! Dude! When said, now, dude can be used for a lot of different ways. In a lot of different ways for a lot of different things. But when said that way, dude! That's pretty close to woe. Brother, you are in a world of hurt if you don't stop. You don't want me to come over there. You are so busted if is what God's trying to say when you hear the word woe. And he says it three specific ways in Isaiah chapter 5. Here's the first one. Woe to you, verse 8, who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. And you live alone in the land. The Lord God Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Interesting, the first warning that God gives when he whistles to this nation is be careful of greed. Woe, he says. Stop. Warning. Don't go here. Don't go down this path because if you do, it will lead to you not knowing me. Greed's not hard to define. A selfish and excessive desire for more of something than what we need. A selfish and excessive desire for more than something that we need. Not hard to define. Incredibly hard to detect. But let me give you a couple of characteristics to help you. Three of them. Number one, it's insatiable. It is a never-ending addition to what I already have. A house to a house, a field to a field, outfit to outfit, car to car, ring to ring, TV to TV, dollar to dollar. There is no logic in it. It just has to have more of it. It's insatiable. Characteristic number two, it's blinding. In Matthew chapter 6, interesting, Jesus speaks to greed specifically. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasures, there your heart will be also. Stay with me. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? One more version in this section. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Interesting. The entire section there is talking about greed. It's talking about more. It's talking about money. And interesting, Jesus connects our eyes with that money. And he says, if we love money, it masters us. And our eyes will grow dim and we will not be able to see how great the darkness is. I've witnessed this. In my years of ministry, i got to be honest, all 
types of struggles have walked into my office. People have been so willing to confess being a bad parent, being a bad mate, struggles with pornography, lies, homosexuality. These are all sins that they can see and can recognize when they're present. But greed's different. I have never had a person walk in my office one day and say, Jimmy, can we talk? I am struggling with greed. Not one. Not one. Jimmy, I'm really struggling with just wanting more. The truth is everybody thinks the next guy is greedy. At least the next guy up. Greed blinds us. It's insatiable. And number three, greed erodes our trust in God. We have his word on it. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The next time that you feel like your eyes are dry and your heart is cold, as we sang a few moments ago, check where your passion is. It could be you're pursuing more, more than you are his majesty. Check that next time. When our world revolves around what the investment account says we have, more than what the Bible says that we have, we're in trouble. When our hope for the future and our identity in the present is in money, I'm in trouble. Folks, every one of us needs to hear this warning because I know what Graham said is true. We are, not among, no, we are the richest people in the world. If, you com- if your combined income with a family of four, is $100,000, you're in the top 4% of all wage earners in the world. If you make $30,000 combined income with a family of four, you're in the top 18% of all wage earners in the world. Now, if you're somewhere in the middle there, around that 50000 range combined income, you're in the top 12% of wage earners in all the world. I am speaking literally to the wealthiest people in the world. And most don't have a clue that they have everything that they need. Preacher included, we want more. God would say, wow, really? Instead of being grateful for what you have, you want more? Whoa. Dude. Not good. He warns his people about greed. Number two, he warns them about indulgence. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets and pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Interesting. In the very first warning, Isaiah says, those of you who never have enough of a good thing, warning. And then the second one, he says, those of you who have too much of a good thing, warning. The first is greed. The second is indulgence. These are not people who are just having a glass of wine with dinner. These are not people who are just having a beer while they watch the game. These are people who are getting plastered. And they wake up in the morning thinking about getting plastered that evening. 
And they get up the next morning thinking about being plastered that next evening. And it's not really just a scripture about wine or beer any more than our previous text was about prayer and singing songs to God. It's about excess here. Crazy excess. Where nothing is ever enough. Ever. He's writing to a people who are extremely blessed. And I'm speaking this morning to a people who are extremely blessed. And God warns, whoa, stop. Dude, listen to me. You don't want to go down this path of indulgence. You just don't because it has consequences. And he lists a couple of those here for both greed and indulgence. First, greed. You're not going to get a return for your money. One of the ways that God will discipline you when money becomes too big a thing in your life, you're going to start to see it disappear. You will not do well in your investments. He will discipline through the wealth that you've acquired and make sure that you don't have much anymore. The consequence for people who seek pleasure, the ones who say, I will have my way or else, the ones who love Toby Keith's song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what to see. Those folks, that it's all about me, 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 which very often is me, 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 me. God says, warning. Whoa. Dude, don't go down that path. Because if you go down that path, you will not know me. And there's no life down that path. He warns them that there are consequences to indulgence in verse 13. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and their masses with all of the brawlers and the revelers. And so people will be brought low and everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant, listen to me, humbled, he says. One of the toughest funerals I ever did in my life was Greg Nunley's. Good friend of mine. Spent a lot of hours with him in the woods. And his aunt died and all of a sudden he was loaded. Had money coming out of his ears. Bought him a new car. Got him a new house. Bought him a new Harley. He was the life of the party. Nobody bought drinks when Greg was at the bar. The money killed him. No, actually, the money didn't kill him. Greg's choices with what to do with his money killed him. He got on his Harley at 2 in the clock in the morning. The speed limit sign said 30. When he took his turn, he was doing 75. And there wasn't much of Greg left. One of my good friends, I hated doing that funeral. What are you going to say? He went down the path of excess of indulgence and he died dude God would say don't do that whoa you don't want to go there third warning pride 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 simply defined as this I know better than God does I know better than God does I know what God said don't go here but I'm going you ought to help yourself to some of this. No, nah, I don't want any. I know better. 
had a brother say to me this last week, we're living together and I know God's not thrilled with that, but I needed to try this one on before I bought it. Ha ha ha. I didn't laugh. He thinks it's logical. I said, no, that's just lust covered in pride. That's all. Another brother says that the practice of homosexuality isn't sin, it's genetic. Well, I know the God who invented genetics. And he says it's lust covered in pride. That says, no, I know better what I need. And that's all I need to know. Got another brother who refuses to forgive another brother. He doesn't deserve it. Jimmy, I can't. No, you won't. And God says this, if you will not forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven. Anytime God says you need to, church, and we say, no, I don't, that's pride. Anytime. (laughs) I don't want to be like Yertle the Turtle. You know Yertle the Turtle. He's one of Dr. Seuss's favorite characters. The story about Yertle is he wanted to be king of the pond. He was dissatisfied with the stone that served as his throne. And so he commands all the other turtles to stack themselves beneath him so that he can see further and expand his little kingdom. However, the stacked turtles are in pain. And Mac, the plain turtle, was most in pain. He was the one at the very bottom of the pile. Mac asked Yertle for a little bit of a respite. Could I have a break? And Yertle tells him, hush up. Then Yertle decides to expand his kingdom and commands more and more turtles to add to his throne. And Mac makes a second request for a little bit of a respite, a little bit of a break. And again, Yertle says, hush up, Mac. Then Yertle notices the moon rising above him as the night approaches. And he is furious that something dares to be higher than Yertle the king. He decides to call for even more turtles to attempt to rise higher. However, before he can give the command, Mac decides he's had enough and he burps. Which takes away Yertle's throne and tosses the king off the turtle stack and into the mud, leaving him king of the mud, not king of the sky. Moral of the story, we are all one burp away from reality. (laughs) And we are. Paul would say it this way, he who thinks he stands, oh, take heed, you are about to fall. That's pride speaking. Actually, we're not one burp away from reality. We're one trumpet blast away from reality. The Bible says this. We may not know how it's all going to unwind, but one thing we know is there's going to be a blast, a trumpet blast, not a whistle. Louder than that. No mistaking this trumpet blast. And with it will come not just our Savior and Lord, but the wrath of God. Hear the word of the Lord, church. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge others, you are condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment and do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance or is meant to? 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to every person according to what He has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Romans 2, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord from Jesus himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom of God has been prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we seek you, see you sick in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers, you did for me. Then. And I hate that there's a then. I hate for anyone that there's a then. Isaiah hated that there was a then. But he was asked by God to speak a word for God. And if you'll allow me to prophesy in just the same way. Through the scripture of the living Lord. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer the Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment. All but the righteous to eternal life. Wow. Actually, no, it needs to be a better whistle than that. Rick, one more time, would you? God would like to have our attention, church. Because, yes, He is a God of mercy. But He is a God who is going to come and pour out His wrath upon those who say, I'll pass on that. I want you to know Him. I think one of the best ways you get to know anybody is watch what they do. And that's what we've been doing, church. God did what? He spoke. But He didn't just spoke, He still speaks. He restored. And He still restores. He rested. And He invites us to rest with Him. He searches when we get lost. And He runs to meet us when we start home. He celebrates when we get there. 
But he's also a God, listen to me, who whistles and says, Dude, you don't want to go here. Bad news. Stop what you're doing now. Turn around and go the other way. He's a God of grace and mercy, but there's going to come a time when those who are arrogant enough to think they don't need it or him will get their wish. And he has spoken clearly that his son dying on a cross for the sins of this world was more than just some nicety. It was necessity. There is no other name by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, that implies you knowing him, not just being able to say that name. Satan can say Jesus in any prayer with anybody. But he cannot follow Jesus. He cannot be passionate about Jesus. And that's what God is calling us to be. I want you to love me with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. I will settle for nothing less because I've given nothing less. There's still hope. There was for the nation of Israel then and there's hope for you here today. If you came in here and today what you needed, the last thing you needed was just some gentle service about God and and some nice things that will help you be better in life. What you needed was, dude, God's saying it. And he's warning you, stop, do a 180, come to me, come to me and I will give you rest. But... If you won't come, I won't make you. And when that trumpet blasts, and if you're still there, it will not be a blast. I promise you. We're going to sing a song here. I do not want you to sing a lie, please. We place you on the highest place. We place you. On the highest place. Question. Is he? If he's not, we're going to have elders at the back. I'm going to be down here at the front. Today is a day to stop. Do a 180 and say, I'm, I am putting you back on the highest place. We are one trumpet blast away from reality. Please put him there. He deserves it. And your life will be better for it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this great church. These are hard words to hear. They're hard words for you to want me to speak. But I thank you, Father, that you're a God that not just calls us or cheers us, but you warn us. Help us stay away from the things that will destroy us and ultimately mean our eternal destruction. Father, if anybody here today needs to wash themselves in the blood of Jesus Christ, please help them to come so that we can see them walk into a brand new life and leave their sins right here today. If someone here today is denying justice and needs to offer it, please help them to do so. If someone here today is needing to extend some of their wealth to people who don't have much, to experience the joy you give in giving us, please, God, help them to do that. However we can love you back, we want to do that. We truly want to place you on the highest place. Hear our hearts as we pray and now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.
If we can minister to you, please come. Let's stand. Let's sing, church.